0: Amen. We get a chance to worship some more through the music after the sermon. It's good to have everybody. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, good to see you, man. It's nice to have family, you know? Isn't it? It's nice to come and sit together in our, uh, our little family room here, you know? And to see one another, to see new faces. I got to meet some new faces today. I love that. It's good to feel welcome right it's good to feel welcome as you are uh, A lot of times we have difficulty welcoming people as they are now because we get uh hung up on how they were. I moved out of my hometown it's probably a good thing for them and for me. <laughs> I remember going back to my ten year high school reunion and in high school uh I got in a verbal disagreement with another student because I did a presentation on evolution, a Darwinian evolution, in which I was asserting this is the way that the world is. And I'm not here to fight about evolution. This is not what the conversation not the sermon today. It just happens to be what the, my attitude towards life at the time. And I was aggressively opposed to God and to Christianity and especially to really loud Christian kids that I was having this disagreement with. I don't know her name, but I hope Sarah's doing well today. (laughs) And I went back to my high school reunion 10 years later, and I had had become a Christian. I had given my life to Jesus, and I was seeking God with everything. I had nothing left. I basically had to give up everything to be a Christian. I lost all my friends. My roommates hated my guts, and everybody was like, what is wrong with you? Who are you? Because I was so aggressively anti-God and anti-church that me becoming a Christian was literally night and day difference to who I was before. And so I went to this 10 they're like, oh, how's it going? And as a Christian, I'm like, well, you're about to find out how it's going. Because my whole paradigm shifted. And it was funny when I told them, oh, I'm in Hawaii, and, it, you know, it's great. I didn't say that on purpose, but that's just where I was. And they were, they were like, oh, what are you doing there? And I was like, oh, well, I'm a I've become a Christian and I'm learning how to pastor and this sorts of thing. And you know when your dog, you say something to your dog and it's like, huh? (laughs) This is the response that I got over and over and over again. And people, it was really funny how apprehensive they were. I remember meeting Sarah after I became a Christian, same girl that I got into a verbal altercation with. It was more an altercation than than a discussion, but she looked at me and she was like, she did that sideways thing and I had to look at her and say, hey, I'm really sorry for being such a jerk. And it was funny, she, it seemed that she had a difficult time accepting that I had really changed into this other person. And we have this tendency, don't we, to trust the change in another person's life. As family, talking about family a minute ago, as family members, it's much more difficult to believe a change can happen with your actual brothers and sisters than to accept a new brother or sister right? Because we know them, like we know them, like this is who they are. And this whole thing, this has got to be a charade. This has got to be an act. There is no way that this person is different than what I knew from before. I want you to think about this. What if your sister, you know that sister, that sibling that you have, right, who has caused so much strife and conflict for you because of your faith? If tomorrow she came home and she said, hey, I need to tell you something, and she talked about coming to know Jesus, what would your initial response be? Don't answer out loud. What about that boss that you might have, right, that is harsh and cruel because of your faith and always kind of shooting jabs at you? How would you respond? Like, what would your demeanor be? How quick would you be to, to, oh, hey, let's start a Bible study tomorrow with this person if they came to you this week and said, hey. I need to tell you what happened over the weekend and they'd become a Christian. What about that parent? Maybe, maybe you have a parent who has been in constant conflict with you because of your faith. Ministering to students for so many years, you, you, there are students who come to know Jesus and have a very difficult time at home because their parents are like, what is wrong with you? But what would happen if that parent that maybe had caused so much pain in your life and who caused so much strife and conflict for you because of your faith, what if they came to know Jesus and there was a 180 degree turn and they went from maybe abusive to compassionate? What if because they surrendered their lives to Christ, their whole paradigm shifted, their whole focus of life shifted? I wonder how well we would invite them in It's difficult, right? It's difficult to trust the change in a person's heart, especially when you know them, especially when you have seen what they were like. This is why I'm glad you guys never knew me before. You only know Christian, Johnny, which I think is fantastic. I'm glad none of you know the other one. And the truth is, is that guy is dead. And there's a new man here now. And I think today as we study Acts chapter nine, we're gonna hit, Saul's conversion, right? Every Acts chapter 9, this is what we talk about a lot, Saul's conversion. But I want to I want to focus on the first 31 verses in Acts chapter 9. And I want us to pay attention to a dynamic that was going on not just at the point of his conversion, but what happened afterwards. And I want us to challenge ourselves to figure out where we fit into the story and maybe how we can do it a little better as believers when somebody who may be our enemy becomes a part of the family. Let's jump in, huh? Also, before we get going, as we study Acts, as I've told you every week, please read on your own. Don't wait just for Sunday to study the book of Acts. Go back and read. There's more to it, right? There's a second half of chapter nine that we won't get to today that I want you to keep reading, okay? Uh, Just for your Just for your um, own benefit, Acts chapter 22 and Galatians 1, 11 to 24 or so, also help uh, couch the picture here, right? We get a piece of the story, but the, the scripture in Galatians in chapter 1 and also Acts 22, Paul expands on the story a bit about what was happening at this very moment. So I want you to write those down and go back and read those. I'll say them again just in case you didn't hear the first time. Acts 22, Galatians 1. 11 to 24, they'll help to give a bigger, a more detailed picture of what was going on at this time. Just for context, the conversion of Saul, who will be named Paul later, is a turning point in God's dealing with Israel. Remember, he has given a ton of time to proclaiming the Messiah to his people. And we had two people, Peter, the Apostle Peter, and now the Apostle Paul. And here's some some things just to keep in mind. Peter was one of the 12 apostles. Paul was called apart from the 12, still an apostle because of his interaction personally with Jesus. Peter was centered in Jerusalem. Paul, now the the story will shift from Jerusalem to Antioch. We'll get there soon. Peter ministered mainly to Israel, and Paul was going to be ministering to the Gentiles. Peter was called on earth by Christ, and Paul was called by Christ from heaven Peter saw Christ's glory on earth, and Paul saw Christ's glory in heaven. Now we come to Acts 9, chapter 1. Again, thinking about the things we just talked about, how good we are at welcoming those who have legitimate change in their life. Here's what it says in verse 9, chapter 1. It says, Meanwhile, right, this is after Philip and the Ethiopian. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, this is one term that uh, described the disciples, those who were following Jesus. There were several terms, disciples, those who followed the way, the saints, uh, later on Christians, we'll get to that in a minute, but this is how he explains it here Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And I always wonder, what made Saul so angry? Why was he so mad? On one hand, Saul knew the stories of of rebellious Israel bowing down to false gods, and it caused a lot of problems for the nation of Israel. So on one hand, he felt like he was maybe honoring God by, by not allowing the nation to go after this false god, Jesus, right? This false Christ, Right? Remember, they're proclaiming Jesus resurrected as the Christ, the Messiah, the way. And Saul didn't buy it. And because he didn't buy it, he was going to, on behalf of God, go and take care of all these foolish people who were leading the nation astray. That's one reason why he was so mad. I wonder if another reason he was so mad that if it was true, it was going to Basically, set aside all of his earthly work to be close to God, right? Self-righteousness. Doing all the right things so that I can be close to God. This is almost every religion on the earth except Christianity. Doing a bunch of things to earn your way and earn your access to God, where this says you can't do enough. So just submission to Jesus, accepting his free gift of grace without any effort to work on your own is what gains you access. It flipped the whole script. It meant maybe he had to set aside his pride. He was a prideful man. He was angry nonetheless, bringing out murderous threats. Verse three. So he's on his way now to Damascus from Jerusalem. He's going to Damascus, which is in the north in what we now know as Syria. And it says, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you fronting me, bro? Why are you all up in my grill? Why are you messing with me? Why are you messing with my people? Why are you persecuting? Why are you kicking against me? I was interested about this word light. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Have you ever looked at the flash? Remember, anybody know the old flash cameras? Anybody? We have some people still know what flash cameras are. They weren't on your phone. They were an actual apparatus that you held in your hands. They were separate from your phone because you didn't carry your phones back then. <laughs> you left those at home. And these came with a flash. It would flash. And you remember if you, you actually got caught off guard because you weren't paying attention, it got you. And you went blind for a, for a split second. This word light here, it refers to making a fire or lighting a fire. And I thought that interesting, right? That the Greek for making a fire to light a fire is this thing in Saul because it did in fact light a fire in Saul. See, when a person meets Jesus, something is lit inside, right? There's also a correlation to the Hebrew word for light used in the creation narrative, which means to illuminate. See, what God did at the beginning, he said, let there be light and life began right? Jesus came at this flash of light and Saul's life began. He illuminated his life in order to show him that the way he was going was not the correct way and that the way forward was with Jesus. Right? This interaction with Jesus, both it lit a fire in him to illuminate his life and his actual life began. Very interesting. And when you and I meet Jesus, our life begins, doesn't it? It goes from darkness to light, from death to life. That's what this interaction was with. The scripture in 2 Corinthians, I thought about, 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And this is how you tell, because Saul could have been playing tricks, right? He could have been going through the most. We talked about this last week with Simon the sorcerer. He prayed the prayer, he got dunked, but he didn't actually believe. There was no transformation that happened. Romans 8 says this, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Saul did not just fall physically, like he was arresting God's people and then God arrested him. He falls off his animal and there's this scripture that I've been, I've been wondering when a good time to bring it up, to preach it would be and today was the day. Luke chapter 20 verse 18, it says this, when Jesus is talking to the, to the Pharisees, He's talking about the rejection of Jesus, rejection of the Messiah, rejection of God, rejection of the Spirit. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 18, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. And I thought that's kind of a double negative. Like you fall on it, you're broken. You fall under it, you're crushed. And then I started thinking about it. The person who falls on Jesus, this stone that has been rejected by Israel, will be broken. But to be broken means you can be fixed, right? You're not destroyed, you're broken. Saul fell broken at Jesus' feet in this time, as many of you have. And because he fell on that stone instead of under that stone, he wasn't crushed, but he was lit up, he was brought to life. Brokenness is not a bad thing. He was implying, look, if you reject it till you die, you end up are crushed under this stone. But if you fall on Jesus, that brokenness leads to life. Let's keep going in Acts chapter 9. He says, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? This is not Lord as in Yahweh. This is Lord as in sir. Who are you, sir? He says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, I don't know what your conversion story is. Huh. I don't know if you've been knocked, maybe you, you derailed your car, maybe like, the bright light and Jesus is sitting in your passenger seat saying, hey dude, what's up? We need to talk. My conversion story was actually quite dramatic. That's my story. And there's something that happened here. He ended up blind, whether it was from the light or because God just needed him blind. He was taken to Damascus by the hand. This person who was prideful, a leader, capable, strong, was completely helpless. His whole life paradigm had been destroyed in an instant. We don't have the entire this is the only part of the conversation that we have, but something happened in Saul that caused him to obey the voice of God. Where he was rejecting the Spirit up to this point, Jesus says, "Hey, I need you to get up and go into this city, and I'll tell you what to do." And he understood at that point that Jesus was actually Jesus, and he got up and he did what he was asked to do. He was transformed. By way of his actions, you can tell because of what he did after. We could talk about this whole thing, about conversion and how our life looks, but I wanna focus on this other thing today. So they they go there for three days and he's left to think about what he's doing. He didn't eat, he didn't drink. And it says, verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. What you need to know about Ananias is it's another word for Hananiah, which means the Lord is gracious. Think about it. The Lord is gracious. Why does that matter? Let's let's see what happens. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Yes, Lord. Not sir, he knew who the Lord was. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on straight street, and ask for a man from a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So Ananias immediately got up and he went. Mine doesn't say that either. <laughs> Just making sure you're paying attention. Some of you are like, oh, cool story, bro. No, 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 this is not what happens. Ananias is like, okay, Lord, I don't mean to be disrespectful and all, but I have a question. I have a question. Where, where Philip only got, hey, get on this road and start walking, right, very little, and he obeyed, Ananias has a very specific direction, hey, I need you to go down to Judas's house. It's on Straight Street at the corner of 35th and 2nd, right? And there's this person there. His name is Saul. He's from Tarsus, and he's been praying, and I've already told him that you're coming, right? I've already told him that you're coming. The Lord is gracious, is being sent to Saul. And Lord, Ananias answered, verse 13, I've heard many reports about this man and all of the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He's like, hey God, look, I appreciate the assignment, but I know who this guy is. This guy is terrible. In fact, he's coming to kill everybody. He's trying to destroy what we've started, what you have started through us, God. Are you sure? <laughs> you know, like that guy, God, you need me to welcome in my mom God, you need to welcome me to welcome in that terrible boss? Yeah, I, have to, I have to welcome in my sister? I've got to welcome in my dad who has caused harm? Like, I see this thing, but you, I, mean, I, have to, I have to go and welcome him in? Right, that friend? Think about it. One of the worst enemies of the church, God has changed his life and is now sending the church to bring him in to the family. And Ananias just has a couple of questions. And the Lord says to Ananias, the Lord is gracious, remember. Go, mine has an exclamation mark. I don't want to put tone on God's voice. Get up, go. I need you to get up, go, do this for me. This man is my chosen instrument. This enemy of yours is my chosen vessel to expand the gospel to the entire world. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I just need you to go and do what I told you. I've already worked it out, all the details. You can trust me. See, what we don't always realize is when God tells us to do something, he's already been at work, and he doesn't have to tell you any of it. (laughs) It's our job to say yes, Lord, and go knowing. So here's the thing. Remember, Ananias, go. We already read that he's been praying, and God already told him, I'm sending that the Lord is gracious to him to offer him the grace that he has not offered us to bring him into the family and I'm gonna show him how much he's gonna suffer for my name. And you know, I wonder what we would do if it was me. Right, if you're sitting there and he's like, Johnny, yes Lord, I need you to go and I need you to go to this house, right, on Rod's Court or Evergreen Lane, which is where my mom lives in Indianola, And I need you to go, and they're waiting for you because I've changed their life. They're waiting for you to come and do the next thing. I wonder what we do. Do you get up and go? Do you not buy it? Yes is the right answer, kiddo. Proud of you. She's like, done. Mike, let's roll. When it's time, I'm bringing you with me. We're going. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Listen, he said, brother, Saul. Brother, welcome to the family. Brother, we have the same father. Brother, not enemy, not persecutor, but now preacher. Not Hebrew of Hebrews, but now the proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles. Hey, brother, not self-righteousness, but God-centeredness. Hey, brother Saul, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me that you may see again and be filled with this Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell off from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I'm a picture guy. I've told you guys this. I wonder, right, if it was one of these. All right. Brother Saul in three... 2-1, all right, just in case, right? Just in case, because what if the change isn't real? That's not what happened. He went and he laid him. He invited him in. He allowed the truth because God told him so, that it was real. Saul wasn't all, all of a sudden the perfect Christian, right? Neither was Ananias or anybody else in the world. I'm glad that this was our example. We're gonna hold on to that for a second. I'll tell you more of the story and then we'll go back to Ananias' response. Chosen instrument. What I find fascinating about the people that God chooses is they're usually never the people that we would choose. They're never the people that we would choose. They're not pretty enough. They're not smart enough. And he happened to be very, very smart. Right? Rough around the edges. He used Rahab for his purpose? It was God's chosen instrument, not the church's chosen instrument. It was God's chosen instrument. He knew exactly the person he needed to bridge the gap between Israel and the Gentiles. It wasn't any of the apostles that were there already. He needed Saul. And he needed his people to welcome him in so he could get to work. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus and at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, hey, isn't he the one who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners? Right, they were perplexed. They're like, hold on a second. This guy's crazy. He hates Christians. And now he's telling us that Jesus is in fact the Christ. He is in fact the one that Israel's waiting for. They're like, what's going on? And he goes and he says, yet Saul grew more and more Powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Who else could prove Jesus is the Christ more than Saul? Someone who knew all of the Old Testament, frontwards and backwards, who knew all of the prophecy by heart, and who also had a personal interaction with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He knew at that moment when he met Jesus all the ways he fulfilled all of these prophecies. So because of that, God plucked him out and said, no, you're mine now, and I'm gonna place you in this place where people only you can minister to will be. He was able to prove Jesus as the Christ better than anybody else at that time. And he went and he began to do it immediately. See, there's this thing sometimes where you'd know Jesus a little bit, that kind of cripples us into non-action. We don't do anything with it. If you know Jesus for five minutes or you know him for 50 years, you can still tell and proclaim that he is the Christ. It might be to one person in a simple way. I've heard of junior high students leading other junior high kids to Christ. I had an old boss of mine, the first person he led to Christ was in the fourth grade. He sat in a very jumbled, his fourth grade way, told him the gospel of Jesus and his friend accepted Christ and is still walking with him today. You don't have to be Saul. You don't have to be an apostle there. But he began immediately to do what he could to share Jesus. Now, after many days, this, this refers to the about three years he was in the desert. It says many days, but this is about three years. So yes, in fact, many days It's 365 times three. It's about that many days. That's many days. Had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Listen to this. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So he had to leave Damascus, right? Because they were not accepting, not just did they not accept his conversion, they didn't want to hear about Jesus anymore, and I wonder, I thought about this. The measure of your willingness to welcome a new believer into the family maybe the best way to tell is whether you're willing to risk your life for them. Right, the scriptures say, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that what? He laid down his life for his friends or she laid down her life for her friends. These believers had seen the work of God through his spirit in Paul and they were willing to risk their lives to save his right they were willing to risk their life to save his so when he came to jerusalem this is makes me sad when he came to jerusalem he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him not believing that he was really a disciple so he comes to jerusalem this is where it all started right the power of the spirit is working at pentecost the second greatest power of the spirit working is at this conversion of Saul. He comes back to Jerusalem after he's been proclaiming Christ and proving that Jesus is who they were waiting for. And he tries to join the disciples. He tries to get in to the family. And they were like, close the doors, lock it. That guy's been trying to kill us. We don't, I don't know if he's really, I don't know if he's really in. He doesn't look the way we think he should look. He doesn't operate the way we operate. And anyways, he was a total jerk to us. And they were unwilling to let him in because they were afraid. Now, they were physically afraid, but I wonder if they were afraid that he might be a wolf. So they rejected him. Verse 27, and we're gonna gonna really uh, camp out on this here for a, a couple of minutes. But Barnabas... If you look in uh, Acts chapter four, you meet, you meet Joseph right before Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> it says that Joseph, right, also Barnabas, sold his land and offered it to the church, right? This is the beginning, and then this is when Ananias and Sapphira lied, and they died. You lie, you die. And it says, this is the same person, but Barnabas, who's there at the beginning, seeing the work of God, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus, which is his hometown. Then the church throughout Judea Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So we have this really amazing thing that happens in Saul's life where he meets Jesus and completely transformed and then used by God to go proclaiming Jesus. And even with all of that, they rejected him. They wouldn't let him in. And I always wonder why. Why is it so difficult for those who are believers to forget that they used to be enemies of God too? And so that when an enemy of God is a friend of God, why it's so difficult for us to let him in the family? I'm 100% guilty, not gonna lie. It's not something I'm proud of, but I understand it seems the further we get away from our conversion, the further we get away from grace to others. Because we forget you know that you weren't always a Christian. Nobody on the earth was born a Christian. We were born into sin. No one on the earth was born a Christian. Therefore, we all have had to accept the grace of God that is found in Jesus. We were all, the Bible says, at one time enemies of God, But he reconciled us to himself through the grace of Jesus, the same Jesus that Saul met on the road, the same Jesus that filled him with the same Holy Spirit that sent him to do the same job of proclaiming the same Jesus and the same grace of God to everybody else on the earth who would listen. But they rejected him because I think that they had forgotten that they were once enemies of God too. Now I'm not saying you don't show discernment Simon was a wolf. Simon was a, he was a faker. And you have to be able to know the difference. But when there's a legitimate change, a transformation in somebody's life, Saul went from persecuting to praying and preaching. That's what he did. It's a big change. He was proclaiming uh, Pharisaic righteousness, law, the righteousness of the law, to the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ. There's a very clear difference. And they still rejected it. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Remembering that we were enemies of God makes it easier to welcome the change in our own enemies' lives. Remembering that we were enemies of God makes it easier to welcome the change in our own enemies' lives. That sister, that boss, that parent, that friend, that really terrible person that you see every day at the park, that neighbor. Ananias and Barnabas did a few things, and I, I think they'll give us some direction on how to do this better. Uh, anybody, when you're looking for directions, what, what app do you use? Waze, there it is. Waze. So I figured if we're looking for directions, I don't use Waze, I use Google Maps just because I think it's the best app ever created. Thank you, gentlemen. Whoever, thank you, I got you. Yes, go to get a second name. Hey, just kidding. Google Maps for the win better than opening that paper thing up trying to look where you're going while you're driving I'm just saying here's a couple things they did and since ways is a good direction giver we're gonna say ways but it's not with a z it's with an s mostly because the z word didn't work the first thing they did is that they welcomed the transformation both Ananias and Barnabas welcomed the the transformation in Saul they were able to accept that transformation The second thing they did is that they, uh, Barnabas specifically accompanied Saul to bring him into the family. He went with him. It wasn't a blanket invitation. Hey, we meet on Thursday nights. We'd love to have you. He was rejected by the family and Barnabas didn't think that was appropriate. So he went to Saul and said, hey, they know me and I'm gonna vouch for you. Come with me. Let's go together into the family. He went with him. He accompanied him into the family. The third thing that happened is that Barnabas, he spoke up, that's the S, not the Z, he spoke up, if you say it like that, it works. (laughs) He spoke up and he advocated for Saul's transformation. He put himself on the line so the family would understand that this thing that happened was real and that not only should we accept him, but that God is gonna use him in a way that was even greater than most of the others. So they welcomed the transformation, they accompanied him into the family, they spoke up to solidify the work in his life and then they encouraged. Remember, Saul stayed with. How, How would it be to be the person who discipled the apostle Paul? I mean, that's a pretty big deal. They stayed and they taught him and they watched him and they encouraged him. They didn't tell him, hey, look, you haven't been with us for uh, long enough so you're just going to sit on the sidelines. I don't think Saul would have done it anyway. But they encouraged him to go and do that which God called him to do. They saw the work, go do that. Let me let's direct and help and guide. But you know the problem is that it takes time, effort and sacrifice to walk with people that way. It takes You being willing to tell your family, hey, stop being so dumb. This person is inside now. Stop being so religious. Stop being so self-righteous. What, did you forget that you were an enemy of God too? It takes somebody to stand in front and go, hey, this is my friend Saul. And I know that he was a jerk before, but God's done this tremendous work in his life. In fact, here's what happened. And he's part of us now. Any questions? And then they they encouraged him and walked with him. It's important that we remember that God can use even the most obscure saint as Ananias. That we should never be afraid to do God's will because he's always working in the background. That his works are always balanced. The ordinary events are just as much a part as the major Pentecost type events. Your everyday mundane gospel sharing is just as important as the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. And we must never, ever, ever, ever underestimate the importance of just one person coming to Christ. Because that one person might be the Apostle Paul. That one person might be the next person to change the world with the gospel of Jesus. Never, ever, ever underestimate the importance of just one person coming to Christ and let it lead you to obey him. We're gonna spend some time praying. We're gonna respond. We're going to sit and try to understand what this means for us. The band's gonna come up like they always do and I'm gonna invite those who come to facilitate prayer to make their way up here as well. And when the lights start to go down and we stand up and we continue to worship, I want you to think about a couple of things. Where is your heart at? Where are you in welcoming the transformation of others, accompanying people into the family, speaking on their behalf, and encouraging and discipling them? This is also a time where we get to, with joy, would normally offer our tithe and giving, but obviously we're not passing anything. If you've been wondering how to do that, there's this spot on the way out a little box or you can do it online which is probably the easiest way in these times right now so but we're going to respond in prayer together let's stand father i ask that you would speak to us and challenge us help us to be the kind of family that believes that you transformed the worst of our enemies because you transformed us when we were your worst enemy Let this response time honor you, God, and glorify you, and that it would be sincere and intentional. If you need prayer, let this be a time you come forward. If you need to pray for someone, come forward. If you want to know this Jesus, you can do that too. Be glorified, God.